So let's get into our passage. Luke 12, picking up at verse 35. Let me just read the first uh, three or four verses to get us into the passage. Luke 12, 35. Be dressed ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. The second or third watch is that time that shouldn't really exist somewhere between about 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. He says, even if they come home, he comes home late, they're ready for him, they're waiting for him. Now, the first line in, in this, this section that I read is literally, gird your loins. When I moved into the office I'm in now, Dennis and Chris Messler gave me a cartoon to put on my wall. I'll turn that on so they can see that because I doubt if you can see this one. That uh, term, gird your loins, I think they figured it out by now. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Not grid your loins, gird your loins. That term, gird your loins, comes from the fact that they, they used to wear these long flowing robes that would get in the way when they tried to do any work. And girding your loins, it meant they would reach down between their legs, grab the back of their robe, pull it up front, and then they would cinch their belt around it. And it would kind of make, you know, like culottes, pants, so that when they did hard work, it didn't, they didn't trip up on their robe. Today, the idiom we would use is, is roll up your sleeves for hard work. And the, 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 the thing about keeping your lamps lit. It is make sure you're prepared. You got plenty of fuel and the light is lit. You're ready and you're waiting. And the feeling I get is as these servants are ready, they're waiting, they're anticipating their master coming home. They're waiting by the door so they can open it as soon as he knocks. Now anytime we look at a parable or an analogy, we have to be a little bit careful not to try to assign meaning to every detail. Usually when Jesus tells a story, he gives a lot of detail in order to give the story life and, and vitality and feeling. And the feeling you get from this is those servants are excited about the master coming home. They're anticipating, they're waiting at the door, they're ready to go. As soon as he walks in, they're going to jump to serve him. Can't help but thinking of our two little dogs who uh, can hear either of our cars coming from about a mile away. And they get into the kitchen, right to the door from the garage, and they just sit there and they stare at that door and they just start shaking. They're so excited, waiting for somebody to come through that door. And when you open the door, they just explode in excitement. That's the feeling I give these servants. They are looking forward to the master coming through that door. They're ready. They're waiting. They're, they're, they're excited about the opportunity to serve him. And when he comes through that door, he is delighted to find them like that. It says he girds his loins and he starts to serve them. Now that twist at the end really probably was a jolt to uh, Jesus' original audience. The idea of a master serving his slaves just wouldn't happen. But it did here. You see, this, I think, is a, is a joyful picture 
of our relationship with our Master, with Jesus Christ. He loves to serve. And, 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 and as these, uh, these servants in the, the Jesus story focus on the Master, that frees Him up to just love them and give to them. He does, doesn't have to set them straight. He doesn't have to get them back in line. He can serve them. And, and as we, as, as Christ's servants, focus on serving Him, on loving Him, we really do free Him up to, to give to us, to serve us without struggle, without contest. You can just enjoy. The point here is the focus, is the relationship. If you remember last week, we talked uh, about the seeking the kingdom, about treasures in heaven. And I argued that both of those things have to do with relationships. That seeking the kingdom is seeking relationships, is seeking a growing, deepening relationship with our King, with Jesus Christ, our Master, and seeking relationship with His subjects. And that our treasures in heaven are our relationships. Those are the most precious things that we have in this life as well as the life to come. Those are the only things we can take with us from this life into the next. Those relationships that God is building in us with other believers. Things that He gives us are just tools to use to encourage and, and build up that those relationships. The relationships are our treasure. Well, see, this parable that we're looking at now flows right out of that. Uh, we broke prior to this, just because I couldn't teach that many verses on, on one morning. But the, the, Jesus' talk, Jesus' discourse goes right through this. This is more about relationships. And this is specifically about that primary, that fundamental relationship. Our relationship with our King, with our Master. As we focus on Him... And we don't get muddled by hypocrisy and distracted by materialism. Then we enjoy that free, open relationship with Him. We enjoy the delight of that relationship. And we, as His servants, actually are served by Him. The the Lord of the universe serves us, loves us takes care of our needs, expresses His love to us. And as we'll see in some of the next stories that Jesus tells, that when we lose that focus, when we, when we don't focus, we don't enjoy. We just kind of gum the whole process up. You know, if the master had come home and found all of the servants just doing their own thing, ignoring him, he would have had to brought them back into line. He would have had to speak sternly to them and get them focused where their focus belonged for their sake and for the sake of the household so it would operate the way it's supposed to. It would not have been the same joyous enjoyment and celebration. Couldn't have just freely served them like that. One of our dogs is this little chihuahua. And he is a real punk of a dog. <laughs> I like him. He's cute. But he sometimes forgets that he's the dog and we are the masters. And he'll come up and he'll start growling at you when he thinks he has a right to that spot on the couch instead of you. Or a right to well, what you happen to be eating at the time. Or he'll grab the other dog by the ear and try to pull it to the ground. And at those times, he doesn't get a treat. 
We don't say, oh, good dog, and pet him. He gets a stern command or a timeout in his kennel. Now, we don't like to do that. We like nothing more than to pet him and, and see him happy and excited. The fact is that our Lord likes nothing more than to give to us, to serve us, to meet our needs. To just enjoy the delight of our relationship. He does that not because we deserve to be served, not because we demand it or expect it. But as we put our focus where it belongs, as we're looking at things appropriately, realistically, then he, uh, out of his own good character, out out of who he is as a person, just loves to love us and to give to us and and to enjoy and delight in that relationship. Now what Jesus says next is a little tricky. He just finished saying how good it would be for those servants no matter what time the master comes home. And he says in verse 39, But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, again, this is a parable. He's not saying that Jesus is a thief and that we should be waiting with our uh, rifle cocked and ready for him to come through the door. The point here is that if you knew that someone was going to break into your house tonight, you'd get ready. You would call the police. You would do whatever you had to do to prepare. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm telling you, I'm coming back. Be ready. Do whatever you have to do to be prepared. See, remember, this is Jesus preparing his disciples for the time when he leaves. This is what the basic training is all about. And the one thing he wants to make sure they understand is that he is coming back. Now, we don't know exactly when. Jesus himself said during his earthly ministry, he didn't know the exact date and time. But we do know for sure he is coming back. You know, people have at times taken this expectation that he is returning soon, immediately, as evidence of the, I don't know, the the fallibility of of the scriptures. And they say, these disciples, these apostles were expecting him during their lifetime, and he never came during their lifetime. So it just shows how wrong they were, how foolish and and fallible they were. In fact, they look at, at, at Christians down the ages and, sh- and say, this shows how foolish Christians are. Every single generation in every age has expected Jesus Christ to come during their lifetime. But people, that's not foolishness. That's faithfulness. Jesus told us to expect him, to be ready when he comes, and that he could be coming at any time. John Henry Newman uh, used to, uh, he, he's been dead for about 100 years, but he had a, a, a neat way of looking at this. He said, imagine uh, the end of time as a cliff, and eternity is off the other side of the cliff. And history, from the beginning, was moving straight toward that cliff, right up until the cross. The cross was the, the, the pivotal moment, the pivotal event of all of time and history. And right at that point, History took a right turn and has been running along the edge of the cliff, right on the lip of eternity from that point on. So since the cross, every generation in every age has been equally close to the cliff, equally close to eternity. All that has to happen is just a slight left turn 
and history concludes. Jesus bursts onto the scene and brings history to conclusion. See, he is coming again. Could happen today. Could happen tomorrow. Could happen next century. The point is, be ready. It it, it, it is unthinkable, knowing as much as we know that he is coming back to not be prepared. It would be foolish not to be prepared. Let's go on. Things get uh, tougher from here. Starting verse 41. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unfaithful. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does, and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, or from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Okay, this is tough stuff. Jesus is coming straight at them. Through them straight at us. Peter asked Jesus a question. He says, Jesus, are you talking to us disciples or are you just talking to everybody? And Luke says, Jesus answered him. And I have trouble seeing how Jesus' answer kind of fits Peter's question. I, uh, after reading this, feel much better about my wife Becky because I will ask her a question and she will answer. Another question, a different question. I have trouble seeing how they relate. Well, next time I get to that, she can just say, see how Christ-like that really is. <laughs> the best I can figure, Jesus' answer is that he is speaking to the disciples and through them to any who would be in leadership within the kingdom. To all of us who would be servants of the Master. He starts his analogy, his parable off very positively. He talks about the the, the manager who's been put in charge of the house to take care of the other servants and keep them organized and give them their food allowances and keep things running smoothly so the master could take care of other business, could, could travel or do whatever else the master needed to do. And he said when he finds one that's really faithful, He'll give him more honor, give him more responsibility, give him more trust, put him in charge of everything he owns. Now, for some of us, that's not all that attractive. You know, the reward for hard work is more hard work. The reward for responsibility is more responsibility. And those of us who've spent their life trying to avoid responsibility, this doesn't look all that good. But the reality is, this is what we were made for, to be about our Father's business. That's what will fulfill us, to be walking hand in hand with Him, to be yoked with Him. When we are yoked with the Master, with Jesus, He's the strong horse. He carries the weight. 
Now, it still requires time. It still requires energy and focus and discipline. It's still at times very hard. But He is the one that carries the weight. And that is what we were made for, to walk with Him, to see Him use us for His glory. There is no greater, deeper satisfaction. There is no greater honor than to be partners with our Master. Notice what the Master has the servant doing. That's caring for, feeding, taking care of the other servants. Here's that relationship with the other subjects of the King. Serving Jesus always translates into serving others. Because as we draw close to Him, see who He really is and and are loved by Him, we see His heart of love for others. And having been loved by Him, we want to to focus on what is important to Him. We want to do what, what He's about. And so He sets us working with Him to love His other servants. Now, you may look at this and say, well, you know, that then applies to uh, pastors and, and maybe elders, but not the rest of us. Well, not true. This applies to all of us who would be servants of our King, of our Master. Whether you're, you're hosting a, a growth group, teaching a Sunday school class, whether you're, you're uh, leading in a women's study, part of one of the youth teams, whether you're, you're meeting one-on-one with somebody to mentor them, to, to, to tell them and to share with them what God has given you. But it also includes just the relationships that you have, the opportunity you have to take care and serve and meet the needs of, of, of our Lord's other servants around you. One of, the, one of the most important ways that this applies is, is to parents, mothers and fathers who've been given the privilege of caring for and feeding our Lord's littler servants, the children He has entrusted you with. This applies to all of us. And there is no greater honor than working in partnership with our Lord. And there is no greater privilege than serving His people. Our service of people can never replace our serving of the Lord. It always has to be an expression of our service of our Lord. It always has to start with Him and our focus on Him. Or the results become disastrous. Starts, or, or, or his, or the, uh, the results become destructive. Jesus says, what if a servant starts thinking and living like the master isn't coming back? You know, he knows the master will come back. He just doesn't really believe it. And he's not letting that fact control his behavior. He's, he's forgetting about what the master wants done. And, and he's starting to be caught up in his own plans, his own agenda, his own desires, his own feelings, his own thoughts. See, losing that focus on the master, his leadership starts to become exploitive and harsh. The first thing that pops into my mind is a pastor who uses his position just to stroke his own ego. He uses the church as a means to to try to to elevate himself in people's eyes and mind. And Jesus has very little patience for that. And then what uh, the Lord puts his finger on in my life is my role as a father. Whenever any of us use our role as a father, as a parent, just to focus on our 
plans and our agendas and to pursue our desires, we forfeit the opportunity to serve our Lord by serving His servants. Anytime that privilege is abused, the consequences are serious. Jesus doesn't mince words. He fails the Dale Carnegie course on this one. In fact, he replaces it with the Norman Schwarzkopf course. He's going to cut it off and kill it. Now, this is tough language. This stuff about the master cutting the servant to pieces and throwing him out with the unfaithful, or, or, or the, 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 the one who knew better getting the more severe beating. I'm not sure what it all means. And again, we're dealing with a parable. We're dealing with an analogy. And the idea isn't to find meaning for every detail. I don't know what it means, but I know it can't be good. It's a bummer. It's a negative thing here, getting chopped into little pieces and thrown out with the the unfaithful. Now, some people struggle and say, well, this sounds like, uh, you know, if he's talking to believers here, it sounds like they're losing their salvation. Again, don't go down that road. Parables aren't intended to take us down that road. What this parable is intended to do is to show us the seriousness of the issue, that we cannot take it casually, that there are serious consequences when we fail to, to, to be faithful with what God has given us. Now, his desire is not... To, to, to move us toward legalism, to say, oh boy, I better take care of this or, or God's going to reject me. That is not at all his desire. His desire is for us to see the seriousness of it, to face it, to deal with it, and to deal with him. There are two options. You either, you either take something like this and you say, okay, I'm going to do it, and you try on your own effort, which is legalism, or you fall to your knees. And you say, Lord, I want to do this. I want to be yoked with you. I need you to be the strong horse. I need you to serve me and show me and use me. That's the course to go with something like this. But again, we cannot escape the flavor, the feeling that Jesus wants us to face, and that is that these are serious matters, and he takes them very serious. And the point is very clear. From the one who knows what to do, more will be expected. I thought before I got to this point that I would stop and let any of you who wanted to run from the room Because his point is you're responsible for what you know. And the more you know, the more responsibility you bear. You are responsible for what you hear. For what you hear here on Sunday mornings. For what you hear as you talk with other believers as you're in Sunday school class or growth group. To hear on Christian radio, you are responsible for it. And he wants you to be aware of that. He'll come back to this in the last parable. But for now, again, the point is, deal with it. You can't fool yourself into thinking that he isn't coming back. He is. And you don't know how long your life is. We've had uh, a tragic situation in our own body where someone's life was cut short with no warning. It is heartbreaking. But none of us know the length of our life. We cannot pretend that time, that we have all the time in the world. We don't know when he comes again, and we don't know the length of our own life. The challenge right now is to deal with it. Well, let's keep going. Verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. 
but I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Sounds like a Donnybrook. Families are getting exploded. See, this is tough stuff. This is hard for us to look at. But he's calling it as it is. He's preparing us for real life, not the life we want to imagine and believe that it'll all be, where everything will work out, that there won't be problems. See, he says he came to bring fire. A fire is a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of struggle and difficulty. It's a symbol of purification. Jesus also said that he had a a, a baptism that he had to endure, to undergo. That baptism was the cross. You see, that cross became the the, the pivotal point of history. That cross is the focus of the judgment, of the purification. That cross is the point of decision. At the cross, Jesus, uh, on one side made a way for those whose hearts belong to God to come to God and be accepted by Him and to become His servants, subjects of the King. But that same cross became a stumbling block to others who who only pretend to have a heart for God or have no room for God at all in their lives. That that, That cross became the dividing line separating people and hearts, showing what was really in the heart. The judgment is whether or not someone will submit to that cross, accept what was done on the cross and follow Jesus. The clarity that it provides is whether people will truly submit to Jesus' lordship. The purification is in the fire of choosing, of deciding to follow Jesus. And again, Jesus did bring division, even to the most fundamental the most basic relationship, the family. It says, some will follow him, some won't. That division, the reality of that is one of the hardest and most painful realities of life. Some will follow, some won't, and there is inescapable division. Now, some of that division comes from the, the inability of those who do not follow the Lord, the inability to, to understand the, the life and the limits of those of us who do. You see, when we submit to Jesus Christ, His will becomes the controlling factor in our lives. We choose to obey Him and His Word, and that dictates the parameters of our lives. We are making a decision. Our goal is to understand what He wants for those who who don't follow Him, that can sound presumptuous. That can sound self-deceiving or, or, or unhealthy in some way. It can sound bigoted and narrow. And the fact that we insist on finding out what is right and we equate Jesus' will with what is right can feel like a put-down to those who are making their own decisions, often in contradiction to what Jesus has to say. 
And our primary loyalty to Him can feel like disloyalty to them. And then we as Christians can make that all the worse by operating out of our own insecurity, pretending that we got it together, that we are righteous, that we've got it all in line, or or acting out of our fear and being critical of others and pushing them away, looking down on them. We are all too often flat-out dishonest about what we're really going through, what we really experience, what we think and what we feel. Somehow we feel like it would be a, a, a bad witness if we were honest about our struggles, about our doubts, about our feelings. For people, there's very little more repulsive than dishonesty. God is a big God. He can handle our struggles. And it doesn't honor Him to be covering them up. fact is, In one sense, an honest pagan is more attractive than a deceived and deceiving, a dishonest, a hypocritical Christian. Fortunately, those aren't the only two options, to be an honest pagan or a hypocritical Christian. There also is the option of being a humble, honest Christian. Now, the division is still there. That's one of the the realities of living in a world where real choices must be made. And we can't pretend that that it's it's not there, that that everything's going to work out okay, that, that we can all just, quote, get along. There's some real serious issues to be faced, some real heartache to be worked through. And we have to have the courage, as Jesus did, to face them. Jesus said he did not come to bring peace, but division. That's hard words. Now, we know ultimately he came to bring peace between God and man and between men. But it wasn't peace at any price. Uh, Neville Chamberlain has sadly gone down in history as the man who sought peace with Hitler at any price. And we look back on it and we say... Obviously, that couldn't work because Hitler's heart was set on evil. But we're so often like Chamberlain. We want it all to work. We want everybody to get along. Yet without the the fire of decisions, without the the trauma of having to choose right and choose to turn our backs on, on wrong and to follow Jesus. Jesus is tough enough and honest enough and realistic enough to make that absolutely clear. We want him to, 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 to wave a magic wand over everybody and make it all work. Yet uh, the uh, kind of peace that we desire comes only after judgment, after facing those hard choices. And Jesus would be wrong. He would be negligent if he didn't make that forcefully clear. It's his desire for us to face things. To, to, to deal with them honestly. Let's keep going. He says to the crowd in verse 54, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, It's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind bla- blows, you say, It's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you're going with your adversary to the magistrate, 
Try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. (sighs) Again, tough stuff. The drill sergeant's got his face in your face, and he's telling you like it is. Because he wants you to deal with it. He wants you to be prepared for the battle ahead, for the life that you have ahead. Coming straight at us. What what Jesus says is, listen, you guys know how to look at a cloud and tell it's going to rain and get out of the rain. You know how to notice when when, when the wind, the Sirocco, is coming in off the desert to to get ready for it. It's going to be hot and you prepare yourself. Well then, why don't you pay attention to the spiritual signs? They're far more important and you ignore them. You know, in our culture... With insulated houses and, and airtight, watertight windows on our cars, we don't even really need to know the weather. We're pretty safe from it. But in most cultures, at most times, it was a matter of survival to be able to read the sky, to know the weather. Remember one time I was living for a short time down in, in the jungle in the Yucatan Peninsula. And it was there for a couple of months. And we would be out in the field or up on the mountain and all of a sudden, I would notice everybody was gone. <laughs> and I'd look up, and up, coming up the valley, is just, just this, this gray sheet <laughs> of rain coming up. And I'd start running for shelter. And uh, all you had to be was maybe two, three feet from shelter if, if that thing caught up with you, and you were immediately drenched, soaked. It was just a, a wall of water moving about 50 miles an hour. And everybody else knew the signs. They knew how to tell that it was coming. I only noticed when everybody else was running, I started running too, trying to figure out why we were all running. I was the one that was usually caught out. I was the one that usually got soaked. Now, that wasn't particularly dangerous. Sometimes there were mudslides or flash floods that were dangerous. But in the Middle East, in Jesus' time, a a rain could mean a a flash flood. And the wind off the desert could mean a horrible dust storm. It was important for them to know the signs, to be able to read the signs. And it was more important. And it is still important today for us to be able to read the spiritual signs, to, to pay attention to what we see, to what we hear, to what we know, to not pretend that we don't know it. Jesus calls them hypocrites because they're pretending that they don't know what they what they know. They're, they're trying not to face it. They're trying not to deal with it. Jesus says, now, now, now think about it. Think this through. You're on your way to the judge and you've got a bad case. Realize everybody has a bad case before God. Now what's the smart thing to do? You decide for yourself. What is the smart thing to do? Settle. Deal with it before you get in court because you're going to get thrashed in court. So work it out while you're on the way. Don't be foolish. Don't be unrealistic. Don't pretend like it's going to be different. Deal with it. Face it. Settle now. You know enough right now to deal with God, whether what you have to settle with Him is the salvation of your soul. You know you're a sinner, need saving. You know God is loving, that his desire is to forgive you, to cleanse you, that he is good, he is worthy of your life. You know all that, so deal with it. 
Or maybe what you have to deal with is the fact that you are have your priorities wrong. You've forgotten the agenda of your master and you're out there just seeking your own plans, your own agenda. Or maybe what you have to deal with is your selfishness and your abuse of other servants of the master. Well, again, you know enough. You know that he is good, that he is forgiving, that you know that it's his desire, his driving passion to love you and to serve you. Just stop resisting. Yield to him. Let him love you. You know enough. Deal with it. Time is limited. He is coming again, and you don't know how long your life will be. There will be nothing more tragic than for you to deceive yourself into thinking that you can, you can put this off forever, and you wait too long. You see, we all know we're going to die eventually. We just don't believe it enough to let it affect the way we live. We know that Jesus is coming back someday. But we don't believe it, at least not enough to live in the constant expectation of it. Well, this morning we're going to share in communion together. And that is designed as a time to look at ourselves, to reflect. It's a time for self-examination. Before we uh, do that, though, let me just finish up by reading some words from Peter, from First Peter. I think it's interesting to see how well Peter learns his basic training, because he reflects our Lord's words here in First Peter 4. I'm going to read from 7 to about 11. Earlier on in verses 2 and 3, he talks about, you've had plenty of time to live for yourself, to follow your own desires. Now's the time to follow God and His will. And then he says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Lord, I praise You that You love us, that You love us enough to be tough, to tell us the truth even when it's hard, even when it feels harsh. Lord, uh, we want to deal with real life, not our make-believe of how we want it to be. Lord, I pray that you would move in each heart here, that they would see your incredible grace and goodness. Their hearts would melt, and they would want to know you, to know your forgiveness, to know your service. Lord, we want to respond to your love. You've loved us first. We want to respond to that love by giving ourselves completely unreservedly to you, to yield to you so that you can enjoy yourself serving us, loving us, and we can have that communion with you. So, Lord, just uh, prepare our hearts. Open us to that this morning. Amen.